Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. You know, it seems logical on one hand that NASA would select test pilots to be the first astronauts. They're used to risk, they're good with machines, they're used to extreme environments, but that's really true of a lot of people. So why did NASA choose test pilots? It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Matthew Hirsch talks about the profession of spaceflight, the subject of his book, Inventing the American Astronaut. Hirsch is an assistant professor of history at Harvard University. This year, he's at Columbia University as a visiting ACLS fellow. Matthew Hirsch, thank you for talking with me today. It's my pleasure to be here. You know, I think there's, when, I, when, uh, when, when you look at the story of the American astronaut, at least as it's told in popular culture, there seems to be this kind of logical or or inevitable quality to the story you've got these um you've got these guys who started out as test pilots um very familiar with technology moving higher and higher into the uh atmosphere at higher and higher altitudes why uh why wouldn't you look to that group of of people to um pilot the first uh, space missions into space um, but the way you write about it, it wasn't really inevitable at all. It didn't have to be that way. So I was wondering if you could talk about that. Sure. Uh, I think we've all had some exposure to this idea of the right stuff, uh, that there are certain individuals who have a certain ineffable quality that makes them suited to this kind of work. And it's hard to separate the reality from the myth-making uh, that was created around the earliest astronauts, who we were told uh, possessed this quality, even though no one could say for sure exactly what it was. Um, it is true that in the earliest days of the space program, uh, particularly in NASA's early months, a lot of thought was given to having people other than test pilots uh, be astronauts. Um, there was a century of science fiction prior to the chartering of NASA in 1958 um, about people traveling mm-hmm. into space, and they tended to be all kinds of people. Some of them might be naval officers, but others would be astronomers or adventurers, or in many popular movies, particularly in the 1930s or 1940s, there was also often a woman or a child, um, some kind of innocent 
who acted as an audience surrogate to whom plot points could be ex uh, explained. Um, when NASA uh -huh. looked seriously at the creation of its first astronaut core, um, it wanted a couple of things. It wanted people with some measure of technical competence uh, and began to call them research astronaut candidates. And also some people who had um, preferably that combined with uh, some experience in handling difficult or dangerous conditions. Uh, in very late 1958, um, NASA issued a very short-lived announcement for the recruitment under uh, the regular civil service program for uh, research astronaut candidates who needed to have some mm -hmm. combination of educational and scientific training and some kind of demonstrated ability to survive in difficult conditions, which it described extremely broadly. Uh, while pilots would actually fit the bill, a large number of other people would as well. Uh, people, for example, who had been war veterans and had demonstrated through their experience in combat an ability to handle difficult or dangerous uh, conditions. They also reached out to uh, people like professional mountain climbers, uh, explorers, other people who had uh, experience with what we might call today extreme sports. Um, this was satirized quite nicely in the 1983 film adaptation of Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff, in which um, a collection of uh, mostly nameless bureaucrats are looking at film of uh, daredevils and uh, high diving acts. In <laughs> um, a variety of other people who one of the characters says has as their chief advantage the fact that they already own their own helmets. Um, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, the idea that it has to be a pilot and it has to be a very particular kind of pilot, a graduate of one of the two test pilot schools in the United States with experience in particular testing fighter planes, um, represents a very narrow vision of what the astronaut corps could be. Um, if the United States was truly going to explore this new realm, it would need all kinds of people to go into space, uh, men, women, uh, scientists, engineers, even perhaps artists or poets, um, but they might come a little bit later. Why did uh, you? Th why do you think that um, that one narrow vision of the test pilot won out uh, over the others, especially when it sounds like uh, people were aware that there were different skill sets that could, you know, benefit the astronaut? It's a very interesting combination of factors. Um, on one hand, um, the space program. Um, was a civilian organization with deep military and, nas and national security implications. Um, this was going to be an endeavor that um, would be tantamount to fighting a new kind of war in space, only a war that didn't necessarily kill the enemy, but was about establishing preeminence, technical preeminence. It mm -hmm. would, by necessity, involve um, exposure uh, to a lot of classified technology and would require um, a lot of working in um, austere environments. The search for astronauts uh, was also immediately a headache because people started writing letters uh, to NASA uh, trying to get in on the game. And eventually, um, after only about a month, um, between around November and December of 1958, um, NASA kind of began to realize that it made something of a mistake, that the civil service hiring um, rules, that um, the openness of the selection would create um, a lot of difficulties in creating a force of, um, to some extent, um, pliable astronauts who would do the government's build, billing um, with not, without complaining. And immediately yeah. attention within NASA uh, turned to a different pool of people 
who uh, NASA wouldn't have to pay because they're already being paid by their respective military services, um, people who were used to taking uh. orders, people who would live in the most horrible barracks, in the most out-of-the-way and uh, decrepit uh, <laughs> airfields, um, people who had, were already had security clearances, uh, and people who didn't expect necessarily to survive the endeavor. Um, spaceflight was going to be dangerous, and yeah. test piloting work killed about a quarter of the people who undertook it. So there is a meeting um, about which very little has been recorded, in which um, various important administrators of NASA speak to then-President Dwight Eisenhower. And Eisenhower's response is not terribly surprising. Uh, In fact, what he said was that um, the military pilots had already sacrificed something for the nation. And in fact, the United States and NASA owed them an opportunity to compete first. Um, that it was something of, that it was a, a debt that America owed to its fighting men and that they, if they qualified, should have had the chance to do that. Um, everyone was very much satisfied with that response because overnight it seemed to eliminate the hiring and, and human resources headaches that would have been associated with an open search. Yeah, it meant that yes. they could solicit a couple, a few, a handful of candidates secretly. Um, they could examine them privately, they could have secret interviews, and they could just announce their force when they had it without the kind of oversight that would have been a, a major issue and problem. Yeah. So uh, you brought up Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff, which I, I find it kind of amazing that, uh, you know, if you're a space historian, it's like you have to somehow uh, line up or you know, contrast your stuff to this essentially a novelist wearing white linen suits in the uh, <laughs> 1980s. It's just really kind of an interesting uh, thing, Tom Wolfe. Um, but, you know, he he sets up this, uh, you know, every, every good novelist, I guess, has to set up their uh, point of drama, their tension point. And it seems to be in his story that there's this tension between the cowboy culture mm-hmm. of the test pilot and then that controlled world of the engineer uh, but reading your work, it seems way more complicated than that. Uh, yes, I, I really love uh, the right stuff. I think it's a it's a marvelous achievement. Um, and no scholar actually wants to be the author of the definitive work on a field. What you really hope for is to write a book that produces so many questions that it leads to an entire field of scholarship. And for me, the right stuff was a book like that. It's a story that ends in mm-hmm. 1963, so it has nothing to say about how the astronaut corps actually managed to assemble itself as a professional body. And it provides these central tensions, particularly this question of the autonomy of the astronaut and this lingering fascination with a kind of cowboy ethos. Some of that we can ascribe to um, just the the artistic license and the great ability of Wolf um, as a writer. And a lot can be ascribed to the sources as well. Um, for the book, Tom Wolf worked mostly with uh, Chuck Yeager, who was um, who is um, a talented stick-and-runner aviator, but one who was passed over for the astronaut selection, in part because he mm-hmm. didn't fit the mold of a modern college-trained engineer, um, as well as a, a certain other picks, particularly Pete Conrad, who actually flunked the uh, initial selection uh, for the astronaut corps, but was selected in 1962 and became one of uh, NASA's most illustrious astronauts. So there's, there's a little bit of source bias going on, um, and there's also a little bit of the the fact that the right stuff is a product of its time. It's a book about 1970s antiheroes um, um, that uses the astronauts as a convenient foil for this kind of cultural um, mythology that was very popular during that decade. Mm. There was, however, and I think Wolf is right about this, a central tension among the astronauts themselves. 
Um, if there was a one issue that I think astronauts spoke about, particularly Deke Slayton, who became the chief astronaut, is that there was a tendency in Wolf's book to present all of the astronauts uh, as being alike when, in fact, there were deep divisions among them as to the uh -huh. nature of the core. And, and some of that is alluded to in the book. Um, there were certainly astronauts, particularly people like Wally Shira and Deke Slayton um, and Gus Grissom, uh, that very much saw their job as an engineering job, um, that there was no real need for piloting in Project Mercury, Mercury in particular. The spacecraft had been designed to be flown tolerably well by a monkey, so they really didn't need excellent pilots. Um, but they did have an opportunity to assert their uh, power as a new kind of professional managerial engineering class in the space program. While there were other astronauts who tried to cling to older notions of flying as being essential to the astronauts' art, people like um, uh, Gordo uh -huh. Cooper. And, uh, and I think that that tension um, eventually becomes resolved in a very particular way as the astronauts recognize that their value in the space program will come from their ability to stay in charge of as much of the operational aspects of space missions and the training for them as possible. Uh, and that if they build themselves merely as talented aviators, they're going to go nowhere. So, in fact, uh, one of the things I got out of your book, which I really enjoyed, was that there is, a, a, I mean, in, in Wolf's work, there is this question of like this battle, in a sense, between astronauts and engineers, and it seems over, over control. And yes. uh, there, there are there are battles in your uh, story, but they're not they don't play out the same way. It seems as if the, I mean, one of the things I liked about your book to maybe reframe the question was you're actually looking at um, astronauts as a professional class, and you're holding them up against other professional classes in the 20th century, like engineers. Um, with their own battles um, against management, <laughs> yes. uh, and for uh, uh, greater, greater, you know, greater rights in the workplace. Um, so, could you talk about some of the tension points uh, in the astronaut class? Let's say between management and the the astronaut, and then among astronauts who tended to be more science focused, and those who tended to be more engineering focused. Sure. I mean, you don't become and you don't get to the point where you can become an astronaut unless you have some pretty good skills, um, not just technical skills, but also people skills um, and management skills because you are a military officer. Tom Stafford, a very important member of the class of 62, um, he matriculated into the astronaut corps uh, coming from Harvard Business School. Uh, so these were individuals who, like other professionals of their day, of the 1950s and early 1960s, were living in a new kind of world in which uh, the ability to manage people was a skill that was as essential as the ability to fly airplanes or manage other types of machines. Um, the, uh, there are certain moments, particularly uh, in the right stuff and described elsewhere, in which the astronauts clash with NASA's ground engineers about the nature of the vehicle. But the more I looked into these supposed actual events, uh, the more I realized that they either didn't happen or didn't happen the way that certain pieces of popular culture imagine them. Uh -huh. uh, for example, this very famous uh, controversy over whether or not the Project Mercury space capsule, the first one in which the astronauts would fly, would have a window. Um, it was initially designed just to test whether any basically any animal could survive a trip through space. And there was even talk of sedating the occupant during the flight. So there was no reason for them to look out the window. Um, the astronauts, though, were pilots and they wanted a window uh, and they wanted some degree of manual control of the space vehicle. And this wasn't a big fight that they had with engineers because the leadership of NASA's capsule engineering program were people who themselves came from the flight test community. 
Um, they were inclined uh -huh. to trust the astronauts' judgment with regard to um, managing flight test programs, and they actually gave in with, with very little debate and very little discussion about that kind of point. Um, as long as the issues were about engineering, the astronauts, who were all mid-career professionals who had significant both educational training and uh, time on the job in flight test, were regarded as uh, reliable experts, and they certainly leveraged that expertise in their public statements and dealings with, uh -huh. dealings with the press uh, in order to make that happen. Um, and as a result, I think the space program was better and safer um, because the people who flew the space vehicles were actually playing a significant role in making sure that people regarded safety issues and issues like recovery and redundancy uh, and making them important parts of the vehicles that they were putting together. What you're saying about the uh, the engineers, let's say, uh, being uh, solicitous of uh, the role of astronauts in, in designing and developing uh, missions there, on the other side, uh, I know that uh, David Mendel uh, talks in his book Digital Apollo about how one of the reasons that Neil Armstrong was so popular and did so well was that he seemed to be really comfortable with uh, computers. Uh, is that is that true? Yes, that's that's a, that's very true, and that was the case with a variety of other astronauts that, as well who may not have been initially comfortable, but recognized that computing was essential to the job that they were doing. Um, there were a variety of astronauts in the Apollo era for this was true, uh, for which this was true, and especially in the space shuttle program, in which um, astronauts recognized that computer expertise might be the surest path to finding an or early slot um, in uh, in an operational mission. The um, the uh, engineers and scientists associated with the space program on the ground were sometimes uh, derisively uh, described as people who didn't understand what spaceflight was all about. Sometimes their ideas were described as, quote, Larry Lightbulb experiments or things like that. Um, and there was a real difference between uh, people who were trying to engineer the vehicle with whom the astronauts had something in common, and people who were engaged in uh, in pure scientific research, who the astronauts require, regarded as basically uncomfortable nuisances, um, <laughs> both on the ground and in the skies. Um, as far as the astronauts and many of the engineers were concerned, um, Apollo was the experiment itself. Um, the question was, could the United States launch human beings into space and eventually to the moon? That was the big research question. However, um, uh, a compelling case was made, particularly in light of NASA's uh, mandate of its charter from, uh, from October 58, that if it was not going into space to try to discover things about the universe, about Earth, about its atmosphere, about its oceans, then there was really no point to the endeavor. Um, so how much science would be taken along on all of these various trips into space? As far as the astronauts con was, were concerned, um, the less the better. Uh, science got in the way of things. It, uh, there wasn't a lot of room or mass tolerance in the capsule anyway for uh, apparatus, uh, and it was just more work for the astronauts to do. Um, this was a fundamental tension really yeah. from the earliest days of the space program as people like NASA's chief scientist, Homer Newell, tried very hard to make sure science was going to actually get done. And Werner, how do you say his name? Uh, Werner von Braun? Correct, yes. He was somebody pushing for a, a, a more of a science core in space. Is that correct? Um, he, he occupied a very interesting position, uh, sometimes um, um, working alongside uh, NASA and its ambitions, and sometimes with a tremendous amount of deviance from them. Uh, yes, uh, in fact, he had articulated in his own visions of space exploration, space vehicles that were comprised uh, predominantly of scientists and engineers and not pilots. 
Um, although a pilot himself, um, he had a very broad notion of what space exploration and space travel could be. Uh, the interesting thing among the astronauts is that they themselves did not share that enthusiasm or even respect for academically trained scientists. Um, the key to winning respect within the astronaut corps was to have a solid record in flight test, particularly in the uh, fighter jets branch uh, and the flight test community at Edwards Air Force Base, which was an honor that was shared by a very small number of the original astronauts. Um, uh, if you had principally scientific training, um, as did a number of individuals who joined the space program in 1965 and 1967, um, the other astronauts were inclined to view you as someone who could be downright dangerous to have <laughs> sitting next to them on a space vehicle. Um, if you didn't have that ability uh, to deal with life-threatening situations, uh, if you were what one astronaut referred to as a, quote, milk toast academic type, um, you were probably um, a hazard. And this came to a head in the discussions of whether or not a trained geologist should be flown to the moon on Apollo 17. And the response by uh, the chief astronaut to uh, this kind of eventuality was that a, quote, dead geologist was of no use to anyone, uh, meaning that no one, no one who was a trained scientist would be competent as a pilot. They'd probably crash the vehicle, and then there wouldn't be any science done anyway. So uh, in the 1970s, the demographics of the astronaut corps begins to change. Uh, what's what's uh, pushing it to change uh, during that period of time? Um, there had been pushback about the demographics of the astronaut corps as early as 1962, or if not earlier. Um, the first selection for astronauts um, was seven white men. Um, there were at the, at the time talented women aviators and women engineers, and there were uh, hearings in the early 1960s about whether or not NASA could open a slot to at least one woman, um, or perhaps uh -huh. even a person of color. And the way this was dealt with originally was in some cases poorly and in some cases well. Um, the the more sensitive individuals explained that this was uh, the space race was a, an essential national security undertaking. We had to get to the moon as fast as possible to beat the Russians, and to do that, we had to take advantage of people who were already well trained. And until there were women in the test piloting pipeline, um, we had to just use the, the 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 personnel resources that were available at the time. Um, Others made arguments that women were actually better suited to space travel, that their, that they were, their mass was lower, that uh, they might be able to tolerate the trip better. The most insensitive and worst of the individuals, and particularly one line that was quoted, uh, that was credited to Werner von Braun, is that women might travel in space because each astronaut will be allotted uh, 100 pounds of recreational equipment to bring with them, um, which certainly didn't do NASA any uh, any favors in terms of dealing with what became actually a very sticky political issue. Uh, the, um, uh -huh. the, the 1970s um, uh, really marked a time, particularly after uh, 1972, when it became illegal effectively for NASA to maintain um, discriminatory hiring practices in the federal government. Huh. That couldn't carve out wow. a special region um, where it would just flout the nation's laws and it had to make sure that everyone had the opportunity to compete equally for these opportunities. Um, 
it would be quite some time before piloting slots in the military services were open to women, particularly in test piloting, which would lead to the full integration of the astronaut corps many years later. But at least for the time being, it became quite clear that especially as the new space programs of the 1970s, particularly the space shuttle, would not need as many pilot astronauts and would need more scientists and engineers, that with a larger number of women pursuing these disciplines and willing to fly into space, NASA simply had no good reason not not um, allowing them to participate equally with men, which yeah. is not to say there wasn't a significant amount of institutional resistance. Right. So, hey, so I was, you know, I was interested to to see that your uh, path into the history of science comes through the kind of zigzag route of uh, political science and the law. Right. You studied uh, policy right, yes. as an undergrad and the law, and I was wondering how you made the transition to history of science and whether those experiences in you know political science and law. Do you think that they uh, shape in any way your uh, approach to this project? Oh, absolutely. Um, I began my studies in political science just as the Cold War was ending um, and uh, was very much interested in the technologies, um, particularly of the later Cold War period, this 1970s through 1980s period, in which technologies like the space shuttle, I think, fit right in. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the experience in practicing law, I think, was also a profoundly useful one for me. Um, although I do occasionally do projects in the history of law, I found my experience practicing useful for another reason. And that is, I often consider myself um, not just a historian of technology, but actually an historian of labor who works mm -hmm. in the science and technology milieu. And uh, I often say to people that five years practicing law will turn anyone into a Marxist. Uh, <laughs> that's not entirely true. But um, it, having uh, had that kind of work, um, particularly in corporate litigation, um, it made me look at issues of labor um, uh -huh. in a way I probably wouldn't have had I remained interest focused on technology and its development. And that um, that that behind uh, sort of the uh, the all of these very interesting um, big science and techno scientific projects of the late twentieth century are um, lots of people, um, yeah. well-schooled, well-trained, working, and trying to make that work meaningful for themselves and finding it extremely difficult to do so sometimes. Um, that, that was very interesting to me. And um, it made me think uh, that perhaps the people who do these jobs, who had very much the kinds of education that I did, I did my undergraduate work at MIT, I was very interested in, in science and engineering and took a lot of coursework in these areas, um, that these are human beings who want something out of their lives and are hoping that the space program will give them that. And I found that, particularly when I started looking at the earliest astronauts, that this was acutely true of them. They weren't quite sure what they were signing up for. Um, they weren't quite sure if the program would work, but they found themselves at a crossroads in their career where they realized that there were lots of people who were every bit as good as they were, and that if they wanted to really be special, they might have to take a risk on something that seemed not to be a sure thing. And uh, it also was interesting to me how much of them either didn't have or suppressed um, any real enthusiasm about space exploration. In fact, huh. that was often considered a strike against them in the examinations that they undertook with psychologists. Um, the uh, the astronauts were acutely aware of themselves as burgeoning professionals in a rather unstable age for people who worked with their hands um, and um, wanted to make sure that um, they would come out on top no matter what developments in yeah. the future of technology actually emerged. 
You know, um, one of the things that uh, I really like about uh, certain books is that you're you think you're going to get one thing, and then there's something that's surprising or counterintuitive about it. And I felt reading your book, um, Inventing the American Astronaut, that what was counterintuitive about it was that you know we've all heard of astronauts; they're they're the celebrated, uh, seemingly all powerful heroes of the nineteen late 1950s and early 1960s. And reading your book, you see them as, well, yeah, they, they do have this uh, incredible position, but it's a precarious position. <laughs> it's a difficult mm-hmm. position. And uh, so I appreciate what you said about um, looking at, at it through the lens of labor. You really, you see how uh, precarious it is. Oh, thank you. And I was also shocked to the degree to which they were worried all the time. The, the psychologists who examined the first group of astronauts and had a, a smaller role in the next group uh, determined that they pretty much all had obsessive compulsive tendencies, um, that um, it was really important to them that they excel, and that many astronauts um, privately uh, fumed and steamed um, at perceived mistakes that they made. Um, these were individuals who, rather than being sort of devil-may-care cowboys, um, were devoted to the idea of, of, of achieving excellence, and, yeah. uh, and they never stopped trying and working to do it. Huh. I know that your um, that your new project examines uh, the astronaut corps as you move into the 1980s and 90s and the space shuttle era. Uh, what kinds of I, I don't know. I guess how does uh, what kinds of findings are you are you finding with this? Is it a radically different kind of astronaut experience? Uh, to a large extent, uh, I think it is. Um, the one of the ideas that I that I played with in the first book was uh, the fundamental tension sometimes between astronauts in terms of establishing their autonomy versus NASA management. Uh, the astronauts managed to do reasonably well uh, in their first decade of operation. Uh, the person basically in charge of the astronaut corps is a fellow astronaut. Uh, he and his uh, assistant have a lot of uh, control over who gets to be an astronaut, how the astronauts are trained, and most importantly, how the astronauts are assigned to missions. Um, but in, in talking to people um, familiar with the experience of the space shuttle in the 1980s and the 1990s, uh, something changes. Um, I'm tempted to say that the astronaut program becomes more corporate um, with all of those negative connotations. At least some of that is true in that it becomes uh, a large institution in which certain powerful individuals uh, who are most likely uh, uh, not astronauts um, manage to obliterate some of the specialness associated with being an astronaut. Um, Astronauts, in part due to public fatigue with the space program and in part due to the nature of the shuttle itself and the program, they become far more fungible entities with much less control over their professional pathways. Um, the, uh, they find themselves, um, even mission commanders, not really having as much say in what they do on their missions and, and how things will proceed. Um, astronauts find themselves mostly externally controlled by other NASA managers. Um, mm-hmm. It seems quite clear that certain astronauts have been tagged um, to have good long careers and others will largely be ignored. Maybe they'll fly once in 10 years. Um, uh, and that, uh, although it's, one can't quite describe it as being the man in the gray flannel spacesuit, um, there is something about suppressing your desire and your needs and learning how to be a team player to function in a space program that to a large extent people have forgotten about but still remains a very important and expensive infrastructure in the huh. United States. 
So uh, where we are now in 2018, uh, it seems like we're right on the cusp of potentially a commercial astronaut core. Um, and I was wondering, do you have any, I don't know, are you willing to speculate on how that might change uh, going into space? I'm often asked uh, questions about this new age of commercial or private spaceflight. And, and sometimes I defer saying as an historian, I try not to make predictive statements about the future. But that's a, <laughs> that's a bit of a cop out. And I think it, it is the purpose of history to enable us to understand how we got to the place where we are today and, and try to shed some light on the way the world is now. Um, whenever I hear about private or commercial spaceflight, um, I'm always a little wary, uh, in part because many of the entities undertaking so-called private spaceflight, um, companies like SpaceX, um, are actually just new startup, uh, effectively aerospace contractors in the same way that Lockheed or Boeing or Martin were uh, 60 years ago. Um, they're just offering products that are cheaper um, than the ones offered by the big guys. Uh, new technologies, new production processes, the fact that they're doing lots of things in-house enables them to offer launch vehicles and space vehicles to the U.S. government um, at a lower price. However, the, the main customer for space exploration in the United States is still the United States government. Let's not kid ourselves that there's a right. very large private market for people traveling into space. And the gold standard for being successful as a space company is whether um, you're able to gain contracts to fly national security payloads. Uh, for the National Reconnaissance Office or, or uh, the U.S. Air Force, uh, where, where the budgets are enormous. Um, and uh, so on one hand, it's nice to see new players entering the field, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we've arrived at the day of private or commercial space exploration. It was always intended when NASA was founded um, that it would engage in exploration research and that once um, spaceflight became routine, private companies would fill in uh, to provide routine access to space, as indeed um, private um, airlines did um, after aviation technology was uh, developed and became mature. Um, it's taken a very long time for uh -huh. this to happen because there isn't a tremendous reason for people to travel into space and the market for uh, commercial space vehicles has been somewhat stable over time. Um, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm always excited um, by any new developments in space exploration, but we have a tendency to overplay or oversimplify what exactly private spaceflight is going to mean. Um, and we have a tendency to forget how incredibly dangerous the undertaking is. Um, the um, failure rate associated with the space shuttle was about 1 in 100 flights, which is actually terrific for a space vehicle. Um, one of the things I explore in the book um, is uh, sort of comments by Richard Feynman and others, particularly surrounding the loss of uh, Challenger in 1986. Um, that the real problem isn't that the space shuttle was particularly dangerous, it's, it's just that people thought it was a lot safer than it actually was. I think yeah, there is now right. a, a popular conception that spaceflight has become safe. And there will be a private space market based on people flying into orbit. But with a failure rate of one out of 100, you're not going to see a tremendous amount of enthusiasm for that. You will when the failure rate is one out of 100,000, which is what the space shuttle was promised to be. And that's just absurd. Um, there are very few technologies that work that reliably, particularly ones that are gigantic bombs um, that have to travel hundreds of miles at tens of thousands of miles per hour. Yeah. On that happy note. <laughs> uh, Matthew Hirsch, thank you for talking with me. It's been my pleasure. That's it for today. Next week, biologist Stefan Bullard talks about his new book on Ebola and the West African outbreak of 2014. 
Make sure to check out Time to Eat the Dog's website for pictures, links, and other exploration-related stuff. If you like the show, please rate and review it. It helps get the word out to new listeners. And if you want to get in touch, always feel free to email me at time to eat the dogs, that's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. Thanks a lot. See you next week. <laughs>